Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Thursday, November 17th, 2005. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we are joined by Karen Kirkhoff, Ph.D. MSN, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Nursing, where she is also an endowed chair in the School of Nursing as well. She's here with us today to discuss an article she wrote for the December issue of Critical Connections entitled, Getting Our ICU Language Straight. The article focuses on how critical care professionals interact with family members and offers suggestions on how to speak with family members during this stressful time. How are you, Karen? Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'd like to begin, as we often do in these, by having you tell us a little bit about your unique personal background and how you became involved in improving end-of-life care. Uh, Well, I had worked in a number of ICUs and over the years had seen patients where, in essence, we were providing end-of-life care, but I don't think we called it that. And I successfully um, submerged them into my unconscious or my subconscious. And then I had a unique experience witnessing my mother die in hospice care where we didn't give her IVs and we didn't suction her and we didn't do all the things that we did to these dying ICU patients. And then after that, I was not able to continue that same kind of care and made a resolve that I would do everything I could so that ICU families and patients would have the same experience of a beautiful death surrounded by family and love and comfort that I had been afforded in my mother's death. And in effect, I said it was very beautiful, and that's not how I would describe ICU deaths. And so I know that there's a major difference when someone dies in hospice and ICU, but I think there are many things that we can do to make ICU end-of-life care better. And it it seems... um you know, I was lucky in, in fellowship, there was a palliative care service. And one of the problems, and it's alluding to your direct issue, is that transition. Yes. It's all about the transition, right? Yes. And figuring out when we're at that transition. Right. There, um, there was one study that I thought helped a lot in that, and uh, they use the term milestones, and it's by Lilly. And uh, he's got a 2000 and a 2003 paper where they gave milestones to the families so that something like when the uh, patient is able to support his own blood pressure, we'll know he's getting better. And so there was that early interaction so that families come to know 
He's still having his blood pressure supported. He probably is not getting better. Then when we come and we have a discussion where we say, you know, he's not making the progress, they are not shocked like they are when we hold the first family meeting to tell them we're thinking about withdrawal of life support. So we tend not to have those conversations until we think the end is near. And then the family is shocked because the whole time we've been saying, oh, we have this to try, that to try. So, uh, again, it's trying to give some structure to what can appear to be very chaotic yes. to help them understand where where a patient may be in the course of their critical illness. Yes, because families don't know where to focus. They see numbers flashing. That grabs their attention. So they don't know. Is it better now that it's 98 instead of 90? But they don't even know what the 90 is about. And so I thought I like this milestone study, uh, and they had some very nice results, reduction in length of stay, um, reduction in intensive care mortality even during the intervention. They just, it seemed to have a lot of good positive effects, and I'm sure that the families felt like they were in the loop, and the clinician had helped them on how to focus their attention with the patient. And could you, uh, for the next phase, uh, potentially, of the interview, tell us a little bit about how you transitioned personally from your experience with your uh, close relative to your research? Uh, How many years have you been focusing in on this, and and how did you decide which areas you wanted to focus in um, from your academic perspective? Well, you know, it takes a while after your mother dies. I was very close to her, and I found a research partner Vicki Spuler, who I think is well-known in SCCM at LDS Hospital, and then we put our heads together. She's a critical care nurse manager at LDS Hospital in Salt Lake, and I was at the University of Utah at this point, and we met up and started sharing our war stories about ICU deaths. And, you know, she said she wanted to do something about it. I wanted to do something about it. And then we started, we first didn't know, like, what are all the problems. And so we decided to interview ICU nurses in a focus group setting and ICU families. And so I became aware that uh, families didn't understand what happened when the patient was ventilated and then later had withdrawal of life support and during that time never got to say goodbye. And I felt when I heard that from a woman who had been married 50-some years, I was sitting in the room during this interview. I thought I was slugged in the stomach. I felt so much pain when she said that. And I thought, why why can't we help these families come along? And why can't we, before we give the paralytics and the sedatives, tell the family at the bedside this might be a chance to have a two-way conversation after we give this medication. The patient might not be able to respond to you, but may still be able to hear. It's just a little chance, you know, if we would alert them to that. And it turned out she didn't get to say goodbye. And I just think we need to be thinking proactively to help families have these kinds of closures. Your article in Critical Connections focuses on language used during end of life. And before we get to that, I'd like to, again, discuss with you and expand upon a similar area, but the uh, precise content is somewhat different. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating when I read it was your article published in the American Journal of Critical Care in 2002. The title alone was fascinating, The Vortex, Families' Experiences with Death in the Intensive Care Unit. And the way I wanted to focus the article was perhaps if you could 
share with the members of SCCM a little bit about how you came up with this topic. Again, from reading it, it sounds like you did a, a lot of work with focus groups, with family members who had suffered losses in the ICUs, and it sounds like you came to some fascinating conclusions. And, and if you could begin and tell us a little bit about that, uh, that would be great. Well, the first thing is I think that we seldom see an ICU family after a death. And that's one issue of concern for me. So when you have a hospice death, the hospice at least invites that the family to attend some kind of support services or grief groups for a year. And so there's not the the patient's dead, we're done with you as the family. So that's just that's one little issue by itself. Uh, then it was hearing these stories and watching the pain on their faces as they described the death, hearing from a son how he had to pull a resident off his mother when she had a DNR order and he was doing CPR. So they had a lot of pain. There was a man who described how many pictures he had of his wife in each room, and I was horrified thinking he is suicidal. And I was the other authors on this paper are primarily psych nurses, and they went up and did a suicide check with him. And sure enough, he was 10 out of 10 for the probability of suicide. And I don't think that's just because of the ICU death, but I think there are many problems with these families. There are also opportunities for clarification with them to, you know, but that wasn't the point of the study. There was a woman who said she kept telling her husband, squeeze my hand, squeeze my hand, didn't realize he was paralyzed. And I can't believe that some either nurse or physician or respiratory therapist wasn't in the room and heard that conversation and helped her work that through. So there are many things that these families are left with unresolved. So I, you know, it's kind of, I, I believe that ICU clinicians want to do the best job possible. So what I felt I was doing was I was the messenger. These are people we don't usually hear from. I'm bringing what they said because it was very painful for me to hear all these things, and I know we can do better. And, in fact, it probably is what propelled me to initiate the award for Patient and Family Support ICU. I'm the present chair of the Patient and Family Support Committee in SCCM, and at my first meeting... Uh, we were talking about end-of-life care and how we could get people to do better, and we could offer an educational session. And I said, only the converted come to those. We need to do something where we hold up excellence, and then people see the difference between what people, what some units the good end-of-life care versus suboptimal end-of-life care. Right, right. So, you know, I thought if we hold up models of very good care, maybe some units will see the distance between them and these models. And so we initiated this award, and we're giving it out for the third time at our San Francisco SCCM meeting. So I've just tried to work at this several different ways, and, you know, the award was another way of trying to show some gap between our present care and those who are doing care very well. Actually, to, to follow that up, how do you determine when, when you go into a unit, or, or how do you determine if a unit is providing good end-of-life care, just uh, from a technical I, perspective? I think, you know, the thing that is most commonly cited in the literature is communication. If I were a family member, do I feel like I know what's happening? Do I feel like I'm included? And, and then beyond that, compassion, 
for how how I'm being talked to. One of the studies that I'm just writing up right now is comparing families' perceptions of quality of end-of-life care after an ICU death versus after a hospice death. And so I'm finding that the ICU families have very low expectations for care. They were surprised. One of the questions we ask is, what were you surprised about? They were surprised that the unit was clean and that the nursing care was good. So In, in the have, ICU. We have, you know, we can do quite a bit because the expectations are low. We can surpass them. I mean, my hope is over time those expectations would be met and the bar would be raised for higher expectations from the very skilled practitioners that we have. One of the questions I had, uh, again, from this important paper you wrote was a comment uh, that you wrote that a lot of families, they said, and I'm quoting your paper here, the belief families told us that supports the no regrets outcome is that they are assured that everything that could have been done was done. And so there were two questions I had for you. One was this uh, recurring theme that families wanted no regrets. And the second was when you stated, or, or many of the families stated, that they wished that everything that could have been done was. How do you take that and yet make sure families understand that at a certain point it may be appropriate medically, ethically, and morally to shift the focus of care, as you aptly point out, from aggressive therapy to more of a comfort approach? Probably the best way to do it is to talk about what is our goal at this point with this patient. I think families understand goals and what are we trying to do rather than choices among treatments because they don't quite get what all these things are. They can't pronounce them all and they don't quite know where they begin and end as terms of a, a tube being implanted and they don't quite know all of the disadvantages of this particular treatment. And and I have heard treatments explained without the disadvantages. So I think that a focus on goal. Right now, we are trying to ensure that he survives. And then I think as it becomes clearer to us, we need to say, it's less clear to me that there's an option here for his survival. The chances are very slim for him to survive. I'm afraid it will be at great deficit. I heard a neurologist recently give an explanation of the best that we can hope for in the survival of this patient. And she described it was a patient who had a a stroke. He will need 24-hour supervision. He will not be able to drive. He cannot swallow, so he will need uh, a gastric tube. He will probably need a nursing home placement. And that is the best. So anything more that happens after that, that will reduce this picture. So she left the room, and as I stayed and talked to the family, they kept saying, but what about this, what about that? I kept saying, now remember, the best that we have in this situation. And that family chose to take more time. Well, I supported that decision. I said, oh, yes, I can see how you would want to do that. This hasn't been very long. And then shortly let's see, nephrologist came in and wanted to do dialysis, told the family it would not be invasive. And then the surgeons came and wanted to do a flail procedure because the patient had fallen and had blood in the thigh and had a compartment syndrome. And so then the family called me and said, what, what's happening? All these people are coming. I said, 
you chose to continue care, and th- these are the treatments this that are This is what happens, needed. right. This is and what happens. And they said, no, but we don't want that. And I said, then you have to, you are sounding like you're choosing comfort care for the patient. They said, okay, we think so. And I said, well, then we have to do different things. See, and then that family over time successfully made that transition, and I think they felt they had everything done because they a, had those options. You see, that's a great story. I really like the way you uh, it happens just described to be a friend it. of mine. <laughs> uh, it's a great story. One of uh, along those lines, actually, exactly along those lines, and sort of as a uh, last question regarding that recent paper, was you you emphasized that families shared with you that they wanted to sort of know what was coming up. They wanted to know what the expectations were, what was coming up. And what I wanted to ask you is how do you, what would be your recommendations to clinicians with the inherent uncertainty that is almost always a part of managing the critically ill patient and yet mapping that to what families need? How do you recommend to help that? Well, I think that, you know, Randy's Curtis, Randy Curtis's work on family meetings is very well done. I think that following that decision-making and helping the families get prepared for what they will eventually see requires a, the work that nurses normally do. And, you know, we have a theory that is proposed by a nurse who got her Ph.D. in social psychology, Dr. Jean Johnson, and she talks about helping people control their situation by having accurate expectations about what will come. And so a study that I am currently just finishing up is explaining to families what they are going to see as the patient is dying. Because the family meeting, uh, in Randy Curtis's paper, he talks about preparing the families, but he doesn't say what the content is, how to do it, when to do it. And so what I'm doing is after the family meeting, I explain to the family members, if the patient is going to have extubation immediately, I prepare them for more respiratory noises. If the patient is going to remain intubated until right at the end, then I don't prepare them for respiratory noises or gasping. If the patient is vasopressor dependent or ventilatory dependent, then I do not prepare them for color and temperature changes because usually the patient dies within minutes after uh, turning off the vasopressors or with the reduction in the ventilator setting. So I, in essence, have four different messages. And so we screen the patient beforehand, the patient and the clinician, to determine which method of withdrawal and about how much time we're expected uh, before the death. So you've really got it uh, impressively down to a science at this point. That's, that's well, fascinating. Well, I will tell you, it was at an SCCM meeting where there were two posters about two or three years ago that talked about clinical variables which predict short time to death, and it has to do with the the heart donation now that they are trying uh, the the uh, beating non-beating heart. I'm saying, trying to get my terms right. Um, that they are trying to do, and so now there's more interest in how long it takes for the patient to die following withdrawal of life support. And so I used those clinical variables, uh, and then used a hospice nurse 
and then we crafted the wording, and I also consulted with Meg Campbell, who does palliative care in ICU and moves patients out to medical units in order to find what's the best wording. And in the beginning of that, because you mentioned the term uncertainty, I describe that we cannot tell for sure how long it's going to last. And so I have a generic portion of the message, which deals with how long uh, we expect and that we're uncertain about this. And then I also have what their behavior is that's appropriate. And so far in this study, the control families have said, I didn't know if I could touch him. Well, so this woman is living with some regret. And if she had been told, however you normally communicate with the patient by touching, kissing, stroking uh, his arm, you may go ahead and do that after we've, you know, while we're doing this withdrawal of life support. So encouraging normal communication because this is an abnormal setting for them. And then the middle message is our expectations and what will they actually see, touch, feel, hear while they're at the bedside. And that's more of a nursing function as we're, we're used to doing that for years, helping families and patients know what will be coming next. In your article that will be uh, published in the uh, December Critical Connections, you focused on language used at end of life and how, and I thought very well discussed, how these languages, the language that's used should probably be changed. And I was wondering if you could tell us why you decided to write an article on language used in uh, end-of-life situations and what would be some of the recommendations for how to implement this kind of change? Because as, I, as we all are aware, uh, getting clinicians to change is challenging. Yes. Uh, well, the kind of the stimulus was I had some experiences when I was trying to do my searching. I couldn't find things. And in a conversation with Meg Campbell that I've mentioned earlier, she says, well, our language is do not resuscitate withdrawal of life support and um, foregoing life-sustaining treatment. And I said, you mean that when we give end-of-life care, we stop doing what we're doing and that's it? I was appalled. <laughs> and so I said, I'm changing that. And so as I've published each of my articles, I put end of life in the title so that if someone searches end of life or death or dying and ICU, that they can actually find some literature. And so I started collecting these things that I didn't like that we were saying. And I give a lot of um, professional talks on end of life in the ICU. And someone came up to me at a meeting and wanted to know the reference. Had I published my, my portion of my talk on language? And I said to her, no, but that's a good idea. And so it was in the back of my head. And then when I was invited by SCCM to write this article, I thought, you know, I only have a thousand words, and this would be a nice little piece to put in. And my recommendations for implementation would be perhaps to review it at a nursing meeting or a medical meeting or, or best of all, an interdisciplinary meeting and make a resolve that the, we're going to move our language and that we are going to be listening to each other and we're going to call each other on it. And I've personally taken that on. I just heard a very good physician say he was going to withdraw care, and I said, I'm sorry, I don't like those terms. It's much better if you say what you're actually going to do 
than to say something which will be misinterpreted by a family. And he says back to me, well, I wouldn't say that to a family. And I'm going, how, how would you know that you wouldn't say that? If it's part of your common language, you are likely to say that to a family. So we need to change the language. We have had the opportunity today to speak with Dr. Karen Kirkhoff, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Nursing and an endowed chair at the nursing school. These are very important topics, and I'm very, very grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for hearing me. This concludes our podcast, recorded Thursday, November 17, 2005. To learn more about improving end-of-life care in your intensive care unit, attend SCCM's conference, Improving the Quality of End-of-Life in the ICU, Interventions That Work, February 17th through the 18th, 2006, in Miami, Florida. Visit www.sccm.org to register. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Registration is open for SCCM's 35th Critical Care Congress. Please note the date and location change to January 7th through 11th, 2006 at the San Francisco Masconi West Convention Center. Learn innovative treatments in critical care, as well as fundamental business practices to improve your ICU environment, all developed by a multi-professional team of critical care experts. Register today by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org. Don't miss out on this unsurpassed educational opportunity in beautiful San Francisco, California.